Well, good evening, Serge. This is uh, Serge online. Uh, great to have you there, uh, checking in uh, the message from this morning. Uh, we are in John chapter 18 today, starting the today. Uh, we just finished up John chapter 17, where Jesus had this amazing prayer that he prayed for the disciples and also for us and all the Christians down through the generations. An amazing, amazing prayer. But let me pray for us today, and uh, we'll get into today's message in John chapter 18. God, thank you for this time we have together with you. Thanks for the people who've joined in. We pray that you would bless us as we look at you being in control, uh, that you're not uh, ever get, you know, baffled or confused or puzzled. Uh, you've seen things from the beginning to the end. You know us and you know what's happening. You're there with us all the time if we are followers of yours. So thank you for this time we have together to certify what you are and who you are as our Lord and Savior. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. You probably heard the phrase. You may have used the phrase whenever you want to assure somebody that you're not overwhelmed, uh, that things are going okay, that you can, you can handle the situation that you've uh, not taken on too much. You might say this, I've got this under control, or simply, I've got this. When the college student wants her parents not to worry because she's enrolled in 18 credit hours this semester, plus holding two part-time jobs down, she might say to them, I've got this under control. The fact is, you might not have it under control. There's a lot of life that you'd like to have under your control, but it can kind of spiral out of control very quickly. I read an article uh, a couple of weeks ago in Psychology Today that remarked this. It said, one of the paramount fears most people have is the fear of losing control. And some people have this fear perpetually, chronically, and it makes them live at a constant state of heightened stress. So I don't know if you find yourself saying, well, I've got this under control. I don't know if you say that a lot, but if you're a Christian and you say that, uh, that could be part of the problem we face. In fact, we're, we might be speaking the wrong line because that probably isn't our line. The last time I checked, that's probably God's line. It's God who gets to say, I don't want you to worry. Don't be anxious for anything. I've got this under control. You don't have it under control, but God would say to you, I've got it under control, even when it doesn't seem to us like it is under control, right? God can say, I've got it under control. Romans 8, 28, kind of, highlights this element. It says, all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. So in chapter 18, we are coming upon a story that from a human vantage point, human perspective, looks like it's totally out of control. But if we were able to look down from heaven's perspective, from heaven's vantage point, we get to see that God's really got it totally wired. So our passage today, John 18, verses 1 to 11. Let's read them together. When Jesus has spoken these words, these are the words that he spoke uh, to his disciples during the Passover meal. And as they walked out of pa the uh, Passover room, upper room, and Jesus continued to speak to them. And uh, that all ends at the end of chapter 17 when he finishes this, this massively important important prayer that he lifts up for not only his disciples, but for those of us who are Christians down through the ages. 
So when he spoke these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, Jesus, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the crowd. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So let's spend a couple of minutes and set the scene. Jesus and his disciples enter what was known as the Garden of Gethsemane. John doesn't include that name here. He doesn't say Gethsemane, Garden of Gethsemane or anything. But the other gospel writers identify this as the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, there's an emotion that's looming over this entire scene, and that is kind of an emotion of despair, at least on the part of the disciples. Life looks like it's out of control. Jesus had dinner with them, but at dinner, he's announced that he's leaving. He's announced that he's going to die. They fire some questions back and forth, but they're in confusion and a bit of disarray. There's a despondency that looms over the scene. The death of Christ is imminent, but overarching the scene that we're going to see today is this grand truth of the sovereignty of an almighty God, a God who would look at the situation and say, no worries, I've got this totally in control. Now, the sovereignty of God is maybe one of the most important doctrines that you and I as Christians need to come to grips with, that God is in charge. Charles Spurgeon said, of all the Christian doctrines that God's children should enjoy, what should bring them the most comfort is the doctrine of God's sovereign control. So we want to look at this control in three different aspects, the place, the people, and the plan. The people, the the place, the people, and the plans. So Jesus is in control of the place. We begin with that. It pops up in our first couple of verses in our passage. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with the disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So I just want you to notice who is leading the pack here. Yeah, it's Jesus. He's calling the shots. He's headed out, and they come with him. There's one thing we've discovered in the Gospel of John. It's how Jesus controls the situations and the movement of his disciples. Give you an example. Chapter 11, before they all head up to Jerusalem this last time, Jesus gets word that Lazarus is sick. The disciples are no doubt thinking, okay, let's pack up. He's going to want to head out right now. But Jesus doesn't. 
Instead, he waits where they are for days until Lazarus dies. That, of course, made no sense to them at the time. When Jesus declares, let's go up to Judea, the disciples are not keen on that at all. Jesus, last time we checked, they want to kill you down there. Let's not go there. Let, let's get some falafels here and stay put. Despite their protests, they head to Judea and Jerusalem. Why? Because Jesus is in charge, and he leads them to that place. Earlier on in this Passover day, Jesus told his disciples, hey, listen, when you go into the city, you're going to find a guy carrying a jar of water. Go follow him. He's going to take you to a house. And as the owner of the house, he's going to show you a room that he's prepared, all furnished, where we can have Passover. There, make ready for our meal. So all these places, totally under his control. Then at the end of the meal, in chapter 14, verse 31, the last verse of the chapter, it says this, Jesus said to them, arise, let us go up from here. And off they go. He led them out of the upper room, out of the city, down through the Kidron Valley, over the brook Kidron, and then up toward the Garden of Gethsemane. And now in verse 18, 1, he enters that garden, and guess what? The disciples follow him. Every single place he's led them into and out of, he's been in total control. Now just file that thought away for a minute. There's some wording by John in these verses that's very suggestive. Again, John doesn't tell us it's the Garden of Gethsemane. I'll get to that in a second. He just says they're entering a garden. So I'm just asking the question as I'm thinking about this. Why does John leave that out? Well, it could be that he knew the other people, the other gospel writers who wrote their gospels before he did, already covered it. So maybe that's, maybe that's one of the reasons. But there's also a possibility. Could be just incidental. But could it be that John wants the readers to think about the last time a garden was this significant in history? Well, when was that? Yeah, the Garden of Eden. Maybe John is just saying a garden, so we might compare what happened in the Garden of Eden to what's going to happen as a result of the Garden of Gethsemane. For example, in the Garden of Eden, that's where life began, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, that's where new life is going to begin. In the Garden of Eden, it was Adam who was conquered by sin. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it's Christ, whom Paul calls the second Adam, who declared the willingness to give his body to conquer the penalty of sin. In the Garden of Eden, Adam ran. He fled. He hid from God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus boldly presents himself willingly, voluntarily, to fulfill God's plan of salvation for lost mankind. So, as I say, could be coincidence, but I'm kind of thinking it probably wasn't. I think John is simply saying, in every place, even this place, Christ in total control. Now, we got the mention of the Brook Kidron. There's something else in the text in verse 1. It says they went over the Brook Kidron. Now, what would that have looked like? Let me, let me paint the picture for you. I think it's going to be kind of cool for you. Right now, up on top of the mountain, it's Passover time. In the temple, they are sacrificing lambs at Passover. Can you guess how many lambs got slaughtered during Passover. 200,000 plus lambs in a two-day period slaughtered. That leaves an enormous amount of blood, right? 
So they had to figure out, the Jewish religious folks did, how to convey all of that blood away from the temple mount. It's enormous amount of blood pooling on the altar of sacrifice. Well, here's what they did. They built a conduit, a channel that ran from the temple mount underneath that mountain and emptied into the brook Kidron, which is at the bottom of the Kidron Valley. So when Jesus was walking over that brook with his disciples, they would look down and see the blood of lambs, the Passover lambs. Jesus passed it over the brook, looked down at the Passover blood, he himself being the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. All very suggestive, almost like divine poetry. Now, maybe there was a bridge over the brook. I don't think so. It was a brook. So people simply waited across the brook. And if the latter, if they waited across, how symbolic would that have been? Sure, they would have hiked up their clothing, but their feet would have been covered in that lamb's blood, the same feet that Jesus had just washed and declared clean a few hours earlier. I don't know about you, that kind of just gives me some goosebumps, right? And then, then there's a symbolism of Gethsemane. It's a garden called Gethsemane. We heard from our video earlier what that name actually means, an olive oil press. Again, it's mentioned in Matthew and Mark, but not by John. The term Gethsemane, we've all heard of it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, there were olive trees, like an arboretum, or the aroma of olive trees would have filled the air, but it also contained a production plant for olive oil. Now, here's how it worked. Olives were harvested and placed into an oil press. Here's how it worked. You dump the whole olives into this crushing device where a huge stone would go round and round and round, usually led by a, an oxen or team of donkeys or something, and it would crush these olives and pits into a paste. By the way, you'd think the oil would come from the meat of the, pit, of the olives. No, oil comes out of the pits. Then they'd scoop that paste out by hand and put it into these baskets. And they'd stack 10 to 15 baskets together under a system where they would put, use pulleys and levers to raise and lower huge stones to press down on those baskets. Oil would be squeezed out of the paste and collect it in containers below. Interesting that when the oil is first crushed, it comes out blood red. The first crushing produces the best oil. They would crush the baskets three times, each time producing a different grade, a less quality grade of oil. Olive oil was used from everything, from cooking, to eating, soap, oil and lamps. It was really the bloodline of the nation. Again, very suggestive to me that here is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, a place of crushing and pressing, where the sins of the world are laid upon him as he's praying. He's being pressed by this horrific situation that's about to happen. So much pressure that he actually bleeds from his pores. Then we have Isaiah 53 speaking of this prophetically. He was wounded or pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. So everything from the garden to the crimson brook, to the place of crushing and pressing, all of it suggests that Jesus is in total control by choosing this particular place to go. He knew exactly where to be. So what do we take away from this? Let's talk about our Gethsemanes, places where you've felt crushed and pressed. Guarantee you, live long enough and you will experience such times. And what I mean by that 
is that you've been or will be in places where it's dark, where it's painful, where it's sad, where it's lonely. It's your Gethsemane. And you've probably looked around if it's happened to you and you've said, things are out of control. And I don't even feel that God is here with me. You need to know something as a Christian, if you don't already, and it's this. If you are a follower of Christ, there has never, ever been a place that you've been where you've been alone and apart from God. He's been with you. He's walked with you. He's led you. He's in control. Remember Psalm 139, King David? He says this, where can I go from your spirit? As he talks to God, questions God, where, where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths of hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and go to the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your right hand will direct me. Jesus said this to his disciples, just to kind of confirm this. I will never leave you nor, what? Yeah, forsake you. In Greek, it's very emphatic. I will never, no, never, not ever leave you or forsake you. Angel says, hey, call him Emmanuel, which means God with us, right? That's his name. It's never been a time, Christian, in your darkest days where God was not there, where God was not in control, just as, is, just as God, Jesus, is in control in Gethsemane. He's in control where you are, even when you think he's not. So the challenge, right, for us, we got to think differently. Think according to truth, not according to your feelings, right? So that's Gethsemane. Jesus in control of the place. Second thing I want to highlight is that uh, we got to look at the people. Jesus is in control of the people. Two groups of people here show up on our story, in our story. There are enemies of Jesus, and there are friends of Jesus. Two types. So let's look at the enemies of Christ. For that, verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So this band of soldiers and officers from the religious leaders are looking for trouble. They're expecting the worst. You might say they're prepared for the worst. They're, they're armed to the hilt. It says this, verse 4, Then Jesus, knowing all that happened to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. By the way, short little break. The, the word he is not there in the original Greek, not in this verse, nor in verses six or eight. Some translations include the word he, but italicize it because it's not really there. Jesus simply said, I am, which we know from earlier in John was his declaration of deity, hearkening back to God's response to Moses at the burning bush, right? Moses said, who am I gonna tell these Israelites that sent me? to get the people out of Egypt. And God said, tell them I am that I am sent you. Now, when Jesus used it earlier in the Gospel of John, the religious leaders picked up stones to kill him, accusing him of blasphemy for, for, for proclaiming himself God. Of course, it isn't blasphemy if you really are God, right? Which he is. Apparently, translators decided it would be helpful to include the word he for clarity. In my view, it isn't helpful. In my view, no such clarity was needed, right? Then we wrap up the, the verse five. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Now, something else you need to know. It says there was a band 
of troop, band of soldiers. Some translations actually translate it a detachment of troops. I don't know what you pictured in your mind when you read this before, but you probably pictured, I don't know, what, five, 10, maybe 20, 30 soldiers. The word that's used denotes a Roman cohort. Cohorts changed over the years, so we can say this for sure. A cohort was at least 200 Roman soldiers, but it could have been as large as 600. Either way, they mean business. Still a lot of guys, right? I mean, given the miraculous things Jesus has done, my guess is they might just be a little fearful of what's going to go down in that garden tonight. Can you imagine how intimidating it would be? You, you know, Jesus, and, and 11 guys. You're just praying together or sleeping when you should be praying. You're in a garden. It's quiet until you hear the rattle of sabers and shields and helmets. Intimidating, right, with that number of men and torches lighting the way. They come in, pretty much surround you. Now, experiencing that, your first impression would probably be, oh, my gosh, this is totally out of control. Or maybe, hey, they've taken control until you look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. He didn't go backwards. He didn't hide. He didn't cower. He went forward and said, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I'm sure they spoke with great force and authority. After all, they got the weapons. And there are a lot of them. And Jesus responds, I am. And with that statement of deity and majesty, check out their response. They drew back. They retreated and fell to the ground. Now, whatever it was that caused him to do this, that's what happened. They retreated and fell to the ground. This was the same voice that spoke to the Sea of Galilee. Peace be still. And it was. Same voice that he said to sick people. Get up, carry your bed, and they did. Same voice that told dead people, rise, live, and they did. That's the same voice speaking to them now. Does this sound to you like a voice from a man who looks around thinking, hey, this situation is totally out of control? No, 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 no. He is in total control. He's writing the script. He's the manager, moving all the stage pieces exactly as he wants them. He steps forward and says again, you know, I am. Boy, one commentator put it beautifully. They came to arrest Jesus, but they didn't. He kind of arrested them. They're, he, they're, he's kind of directing them. They're like, whoa. Now, when I read this, I thought of a passage in Psalms. It kind of fits perfectly. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers, evildoers assault me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Fits pretty perfectly, doesn't it? I want to highlight another psalm. It's the psalm the disciples actually quote in the book of Acts. They see what happened to Jesus as the fulfillment of this psalm. Psalm 2 begins this way. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, Messiah or Christ. I wonder who, who that could possibly be. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their accords from us. These are the government authorities, religious authorities, making their plans against God and his anointed, Jesus. How does God react? Does he cower? Does he cringe? Does he go and hide? No. He who sits in the heavens laughs. 
the Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. First of all, I noticed God doesn't even get up in heaven. He just sits there. He doesn't like stand up and go, oh, let me look and see what's going on here. He just sits there and goes, well, whatever. He sits and he laughs. So here are men on earth and rulers going, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be God. I'm going to take charge here. And God goes, what numbskulls? I'm in total control of this. I'm going to set my king, my holy one on Zion. He's going to rule. Most of you know that the government in Rome persecuted believers intensely, violently, killed a lot of them, tortured many of them. One of the rulers was a guy by the name of Diocletian. He prided himself in attempting to eliminate all vestiges of Christianity in the empire. He minted a coin, and he had a monument made that in effect said, I have been successful in eradicating the Christian religion from all the areas of Rome. Well, he died, and Christianity grew massively around him. But there were other emperors that came to take his place who also hated Christians. One historian by the name of William Plummer writes this. Of the 30 Roman emperors and officials known for persecuting Christians, one became deranged, one was killed by his own son, one became blind, one was drowned, one was strangled, one died in miserable captivity, one died from so loathsome a disease that several attending doctors couldn't stand the stench that accompanied it. Two committed suicide, a third attempted but had to call for help to finish it, five were assassinated by their own people or servants, Eight were killed in battle or taken captive, and several died of diseases. One of those who died was a guy by the name of Julian the Emperor, called by believers Julian the Apostate, because his whole gig was to restore paganism back to the Roman Empire after Constantine died. He hated Christ and Christians. In one battle, it's said that he drew his sword, pointed it to heaven, and challenged the Son of God and blasphemed him. He was wounded in that battle. And as he lay there dying, he took clots of his own blood and threw them up to heaven and said, Thou has conquered, O thou Galilean. Laying dying, he was recognizing, Okay, I fought against you, Christ, and I lost. You are in control. So back to chapter 18 of John. Roman soldiers, enemies, are in the garden. They think they're in control. Jesus says, I am. They fall backwards, and here's the deal. It appears they don't get up again until Jesus asks them again who they're looking for. They can't arrest, they can't arrest Jesus unless he gives them permission. He's in charge. He will go with them willingly, not violently, right? Those are his enemies. Let's look at Jesus' friends, verse 7. So he asked them again, who do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. That was part of the prayer he made in chapter 17. What's interesting is that Jesus actually prayed about this previous chapter, as I mentioned. So John records that prayer that Jesus answered, that Jesus prayed was answered. So here's the deal. Just Let's just use the 200 figure to be conservative on this. 200 armed Roman soldiers an unknown number of temple police come to the garden intent, I think, on arresting the entire gang, not just Jesus. I think that's what they wanted to do. 
They were intent on arresting everyone. But Jesus speaks up, and whatever the display of power that caused them to fall backwards gives them also enough incentive not to press the issue, but to do what this prisoner they're going to arrest wants them to do. Let these men go. And this is very atypical. Martin Luther actually exclaimed, the fact that the disciples got to go is the greatest miracle that happened that night in Gethsemane. Because typically armed soldiers that work for the government who come to arrest a prisoner will disregard any request by that prisoner, especially a request to release what they would consider co-conspirators. But it didn't happen. Jesus was in total control. Let these guys go, which by the way, was a command and they obeyed him. Yeah, who was in total control here? Jesus Christ. Let's check out what happens next. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it out, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Okay, so one lesson here. Probably not a great thing for a fisherman to have a sword. He was a great fisherman, not a great swordsman. I think Peter was aiming to cut the guy's head off and missed. Peter's thinking, okay, I'm going to get this situation under control. He hates not being in control. And all he does is make things worse. I don't know if he thought Jesus would take the bait and kill everybody and set up his kingdom, or if he thought, well, let's all go down fighting and die with Jesus right here in this garden. But while they're all standing around, Jesus in control, we're told in other gospels, heals the guy. Then Jesus turns to Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? What cup is he speaking about? Yeah, Calvary, the cross, his soon coming death that he knew he was going to face. That was all part of the plan. Everything that's happening this night is all part of the script. He knew this night was coming, and he knew it was going to go down this way. The cup the Father gives me, I will take and I will drink. That's the plan. There were never plans going on that night, probably. They were their plans, the enemy's plans. Their plan is let's arrest Jesus and the disciples, let's kill Jesus, squelch his whole cult. That was their plan. It was not God's plan. God's plan was that Jesus would voluntarily offer himself as a sacrifice, being able to forgive mankind for their sins because he was sinless and perfect and his death would be a substitute for us. He would rise from the dead and that gospel message of forgiveness will go around the world. That was God's plan. Let me ask you, who's plan one? Yeah, God's plan one. Let me remind you, we read it from John chapter 10, where Jesus says this, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down and take it up again. So here we have Jesus willing to lay it down because he's in control. And in a few days, he will take it up again. How? Because he's in control. Peter was there that night. He's watching this whole thing come down. He'll remember this. And in a few weeks, after the resurrection, he will stand in Jerusalem, and Peter will say to the crowd in Jerusalem concerning Jesus Christ, yep, you guys arrested him. You guys killed him. That was your plan. Sadly for you, what happened was really all according to God's predetermined plan. God moved you guys around the chessboard like pawns, using your own evil intentions against you. He was in charge of the plans, even on that night, because Jesus ends up coming back alive from the grave. And when Peter finished that sermon— thousands of people who probably weeks earlier were calling for the death of Christ by crucifixion were cut to the core and they came to Christ by faith. And that process, by the way, hasn't stopped since then. So do you know that of all the places, of all the people around you, 
And of all the plans that are going on in the midst of all that, you serve a God who can say to you, I've got it all under my control. It's all under my control. So no Jewish proverb that says, man makes plans and God changes them. You know why God changes them? Because God gets editing rights over your life. Have you given your life to Christ? Oh, Lord, here's my life. Okay, great. Thank you. I'm going to write the script for it now. I've got some plans of my own for you. You can go ahead and make your plans, but I'm going to change them because my plan is better than your plan. Proverbs 16 tells us, a man's heart plans his way, but God directs his steps. So in the Garden of Gethsemane, it wasn't a purposeless accident. It was a purposeful incident, all under control. It was not a tragedy. It was a victory. And Jesus takes the cup that the Father gives him, and that's made all the difference for mankind. So what are we to do with this truth? Now, in your life, you're going to be drinking some cups you're not too happy with. And God's going to go, uh, here, drink this. Oh, I don't want to drink that. It's bitter. It's sour. I hate it. You'll be in gardens that aren't that peaceful. You'll feel crushed. You'll feel pressed. You'll feel pressured. And it's hard and it's painful. And you'll cry out. And there will be people in your life that will impose, impose their plans and plot behind your back. And you're going to be tempted to say, God is nowhere around. Because if he was around, this wouldn't be happening. And your point of greatest vulnerability is when you're in those situations where you think life is spinning out of control, you're going to be tempted to take your sword out and do one of those Peter numbers, right? Jesus will say, put it away. Just trust me. I've got it under control. So last two points. If you can just recognize two things, I think you'll walk out of here a better person and a better Christian. Recognize number one, you're inadequacy without God. I wonder if we really believe that. I mean, we know that Jesus said, without me, you can do what? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. I don't know if we really are into that. I think we think that there are some things I can do without him. And if that's you, you need to deal with that straight up. Recognize your inadequacy without God. Second, once you get to that point, then recognize your invincibility with God. Do you know that you're invincible? As a Christian, you are invincible until God is done with you on this earth. Nothing can happen to you until God says so. But when your work down here is done, why would you want to hang around? Anyway, let's go home. So let me pray for us, and then we'll get you out of here. God, thanks for this time we've had together. Thanks for your confirmation to us through your word that you are in charge, that there's not a thing that's happened that you're not in control of, that you don't allow for our own good and for the world's good. So help us to remember this when we are under stress, when things look like they're falling apart, that, that you are not, you have not forsaken us, you have not abandoned us, you have never, uh, you made it very clear, you're never going to do that. I will never leave or forsake you. So we can always count on you being there. Then the question is, okay, well, Lord, what are you doing? And what do you want me to do in this situation that you're in total control of? Help me to be obedient to you in that. We pray that you would guide us and direct us as you want to do. Help us to submit to that and submit to you and know that you're there. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.